Welcome to the Sources of Denial, a podcast about media, science, and water diplomacy in Denial Basin. I'm your host, Emanuele Fantini from IG Delft, the Institute for Water Education in the Netherlands. In this episode, we talk to Alia Mossalam a researcher studying popular songs about key events in Egyptian history, and Tumina Gergis, ethnomusicologist and founder of the Nile Project. We discuss how songs and music contribute to shape Nile narratives and identities. we discussed the limits of framing Nile issues in terms of water war and we pointed at the need to ask new questions and come up with new stories to promote alternative narratives. So, in this episode, we will explore how music and songs can contribute to develop such new narratives. In fact, when we talk about science informing policy making, we tend to forget that political decisions are often taken to manufacture consensus that politicians serve from common sense and cherish popular imaginaries. And of course, music, like cinema or TV, play a key role in shaping those popular imaginaries and common sense. For instance, last February, a popular Egyptian singer, Sherin, was sentenced to six months in prison just for making a joke about the cleanliness of the Nile. So, Who's more influential, music or science? But first of all, can you recall one of the many songs about the Nile? Let's listen what our voices of the Nile say. There is actually, uh, well, a very old song by a famous um, uh, old singer called Muhammad Abdul Wahab. Um, uh, I think it's called Nahar uh, al-Khalid or Nil Khalid, the Eternal Nile, uh, and it's uh, it's it's basically about how fascinating the Nile is, how it captures actually all those who actually uh, visit it or, or, or have a look at it. So it's, uh, it's it's nice. I can't remember the the exact words, but it's uh, it's one of the very famous uh, songs about the Nile. Yeah. Ya bint al-Nil al-Nil ya halawa alayk ya jameel There is uh, a, a part of uh, a poem uh, called Anil uh, Najashi Anil Najashi and this uh, this spot was uh, was uh, sang by Umm Kulthum she's a popular uh, a popular singer in Egypt Probably I will sing a song about water and uh, not the Nile, um, and then it, it goes like this. Amizi ni marunji, amizi ni marunji, awantu nuhowaku, kuihamagara, amagara, amagara, amagara ni marunji, wanyo amizi tokuruara, wanyo amizi marunji tokuruara. <laughs> if you ask every Ethiopian, they will give you one answer. And we have this a very old song that, that goes like, Abaya bai, abaya bai, yager sisai, 
Jäger, uh, Jäger uh, Kurat. So it basically means uh, uh, the Nile, our, our country's pride, our country's blessing, and it goes like that. first guest, Alia Mossalam. Alia is an Egyptian researcher affiliated to the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation at the Freie University of Berlin. She is currently working at a book on the Aswan Haid Dam from the perspective of the workers who built the dam and of the Nubians displaced by it. Welcome Alia. Thank you, thank you Emmanuel. So Alia, you study key political events in Egypt through popular histories and songs. Why the songs? I think um, songs are a very interesting way of exploring um, a popular discourse, but also uh, uh, intimate discourse. So how people uh, think about things, how they think about themselves in relations uh, in relation to big projects like the High Dam. But what was important for me is how how they tell it to their to, to their children. So you know, Stuart Hall has this quote about how popular culture is about uh, not how we represent ourselves to other people, but how we represent ourselves to ourselves. So I was curious about how the workers in Aswan Haidam would uh, talk about their experiences to their families and their children, how it would matter to them that it, that it would be uh, portrayed, and also how the Nubians who were displaced by the building of the dam, the 50,000 Nubians, um, around 50,000 Nubians who were displaced towards Egypt, um, remember the experience and how it sort of uh, evolves with time. And I felt, despite the, the, the way that people really structure their narratives when they tell you a story based on the circumstances, the songs are remembered, so the, the songs from different moments after the building of the dam, the songs of the 60s the song, they are different from the songs in the 70s, different from the 80s, the 90s, and the 2000s, and each of those talks about a certain sentiment towards the dam, towards the water, and how it changed towards their lives, and, and how they have changed their relation to the water, etc. So... Um, and both both the lyrics of the songs offer perspectives as well as the the music i mean the music carries the 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 sense of the moment how it felt and in the case of the nubians the music also carries the sound of the water that stopped you know the river that became a lake these are really the sounds of the nile it is uh, fascinating and i was wondering what do the lyrics tell about the river the dam and the people around it you have different, you have like a, pl a plethora of songs that appeared during that period. In, in the 50s and 60s, uh, during Abdel Nasser's era in Egypt, songs were a very important mechanism of communicating what the dam uh, signified. So the technology that the dam was, was communicated through songs, the amount of cubic meters of water that would be, that, that, that would be produced or that, that would be stopped was kept through the dam was communicated through the songs, um, the kind of machinery and equipment that was used used the sounds uh, of the machinery, all of this was communicated. So the workers remember it very well because they felt somehow represented, but also it gave people in, in the country a sense that they were contributing to the building of the dam themselves. And 
it, it also meant that people could talk, you know, in, in layman terms, how many cubic meters of water was affected by the dam, how, 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 how many acres of land were irrigated, how much electricity was produced. This sort of science was communicated by the songs. Um, and this was internalized in the songs of the Nubians and the workers. So what progress meant, whether progress meant modernity, whether it meant technology, whether it meant happiness, this was communicated through the songs as well. So in the Nubian songs, you have in the, between 1960 and 64, you have a lot of songs that talk about how important the dam is. So the, in the four years before they were migrated, they were migrated in 1964 and uh, between 60 and 64 was when much of the propaganda was. So so they would also sing songs about how, you know, we have been migrated before by the Aswan Reservoir and we survived. And so we will continue to survive now. There's one song that I particularly like by um, by a singer called uh, Ahmad Sudi. Uh, and he was from the village of uh, Gharb Suhail that was actually not migrated by the dam. And he was a very famous singer and he sings a, sings a song called in Kanzi called Taiman Nasrebu Yanil. You've always triumphed us, Nile. singing to the Nile that, you know, you've always triumphed us after every move and you will continue to triumph us after. Um, after 1964, the reality was completely different. They were migrated very far from the Nile, uh, next to irrigation uh, canals. They depended on them like they depended on the water. So there were lots of diseases and a lot of people died and, and a lot of their like a, a, a thousand years of culture and traditions that depended on the water uh, could no longer uh, continue. So many of the um, many of the of the songs and the music, and especially if you think of the world-renowned singer Hamza Al-Eddin, who was a, um, a Fajiki Nubian who was migrated to Sudan, his music focuses on sounds. So he has a song called Escalay, which which uh, Escalay, which means uh, water wheel, which is it's it's just the music uh, of which uh, of the of the water passing through the water wheel and of the water wheel. sound of the women's ankle bracelets when they're getting something from the Nile. He has also the sound of um, games that children used to play uh, using um, seashells. Um, and this, I think, is significant because I feel that if we look uh, into these songs a little more, what we find is not only the sort of nostalgia towards um, it, a culture and tradition that can no longer be performed, but possibly also um, 
the science of water, of of how the Nubians lived by water, of how they dealt with the sort of inundation and the flow of water, um, of irrigation, uh, of agriculture, uh, that they kept possibly not only out of nostalgia, but I mean, perhaps songs document um, uh, water and, and the technologies that were used by water for the possibility of the future, of using them in the future. Um, so there are many interesting ways to look at songs. You can look at them to understand the politics of how the idea of the dam and the science and the technology and, and the progress was communicated through the songs, but then how people internalized it and articulated how these these achievements would be relevant to them. Uh, you could look at the sounds that have disappeared with the when the, when the water stopped flowing and you could look at the look at it as a sort of how people document their technology or or their sort of water sciences. Thanks Alia. And to conclude, how do you think these songs and your research speak to politics and society in contemporary Egypt? Okay. Um, so, so, so what I've tried to do over this, over these last uh, four or five years is think about, you know, how the research that I did during my PhD could be made accessible to a wider audience and not the sort of very limited uh, readership we have as uh, through um, academic journals. So, uh, so I did a series of workshops, the first of which was actually in Aswan, in the, new, in the Nubian village of Suhail. And we try to look at uh, history, uh, we look at site-specific histories. So we look at histories of events that took place in the place we were researching. So what we did was we actually um, uh, visited uh, a Nubian village, the village of Aneba, that was the last uh, village before the dam to be migrated. Um, and, uh, and we interviewed people there who were teachers, for example, uh, in the Nubian village before they were migrated. And teachers were also trained to communicate the dam to Nubian students. And these were Nubian teachers. So they, we, we talked to them about this very sort of complicated and contradictory experience of, of being excited about the dam, about the prospect of the dam, but also realizing the sacrifices that would be put forth. What's important in these workshops for me is that it, it, it we are, I'm able one to, um, to share like all the contacts and all the materials that I gathered from the different archives to a wider audience of the participants, but also the inhabitants of, of, of all the villages and cities and spaces that I researched and left. So to bring these materials back. But then to also work with um, a community that is interested in history and in this particular moment, in this particular example, is interested in a history of struggle or a history of water, um, to to research these moments further and to reproduce them in, in a narrative or in a way that includes both the events as well as the emotional experience of the move. Alia, thank you very much for joining our podcast. Thank you, thank you, Emmanuel. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed the talk with Alia. Songs speak about the river, not only with the lyrics, but also with the music. And, of course, we've heard the sounds of water and the sounds of people at work, machineries and technology. I've also learned that songs can be a powerful media for citizen science. I found this very interesting because usually when we think about music or video for science communication, we tend to think that they can be used mainly for eliciting emotions and attract attention. 
and then you put numbers and hard scientific data in a scientific article. Here we learn how songs have been also used to transmit knowledge on water and technology. So it is not either music or science, but rather how the two are interwoven. And this is a very good transition to our next guest. If you're familiar with this podcast, you know that the music you're listening to is by The Nile Project, a collective of musicians from different Nile countries performing together to spark curiosity and debate on the river. So I'm very glad to have as our second guest, Mina Girgis, the founder of The Nile Project. Welcome, Mina. Hi, Emmanuel. So, Mina, when, why and how did you start The Nile Project? So we started the Nile Project in 2011. It was uh, immediately after the revolution that took place in Cairo in Egypt. I am an ethnomusicologist by background, and I was interested in uh, finding a way as an ethnomusicologist to participate in what was going on uh, in Egypt and the reimagination of uh, Egypt's sustainability, uh, both political and cultural and environmental and the Nile Project idea came to me when I came back to San Francisco, where I live. A friend of mine invited me to an Ethiopian concert, and that's where it hit me that you know we we have a lot of uh, we have a lot of exposure to different types of music in the United States, but uh, you go to Egypt and we don't even have exposure to the cultures or the music of our river neighbors. Um, so it started with the idea of using this music to get audiences from these different Nile countries to be- become more exposed to one another uh, through the music and, and from there start a conversation around water issues and the water conflict that we're facing right now as well as the solutions that we need to develop collaboratively as citizens from these different countries. So the Nile Project is a collective of musicians from different Nile countries. And I was wondering which are the the main similarities and the most striking differences between the musical tradition of the of the different Nile countries. This is a good question uh, that we're often asked. The Nile connects different regions in Africa that are culturally pretty diverse and significantly disparate. And I think that is one of the unique attributes of this river that uh, makes up for many of the challenges that we face, that people from these different countries don't perceive themselves as part of the same community. Uh, And it also contributes to this musical and cultural diversity that makes the Nile Project interesting. You're bringing together different colors, different styles of music, different uh, tonal and rhythmic systems that don't really have much in common. Uh, Yet, despite that diversity, there are many musical traditions that have traveled along this river um, many years ago. And one of them is Zar. It's a uh, ritual. It's a a spirit possession ritual that started in Ethiopia uh, as well as in Sudan and then moved to Egypt. So you find Zar traditions all along the Nile. Uh, you find many rhythms that connect some of these different countries. Um, there, are, there are South Sudanese tribes that have moved down the White Nile and have settled around Lake Victoria, the Luos in, uh, in Lake Victoria, in Kenya, uh, in Kisumu. 
that uh, have a lot a lot of connections to much of the music of South Sudan. Um, so so you find all of these different musical connections, uh, but it takes some digging. And interestingly enough, there is no one that has ever studied the music of the Nile Basin uh, because people end up studying either East Africa or North Africa, and the Nile challenges this geography. Interesting. And by challenging these geographies, can music help in imagining also new communities or perhaps one Nile community? You know, the idea of the Nile project was to get people from the Nile countries to have a space for dialogue, for a conversation, for this water conflict uh, that we see now in the news uh, becomes top of mind. What we wanted to do is to establish this uh, rapport, this goodwill among these populations, because if you're neighbors and you already have a friendly relationship, um, you will discuss any issues that come up in, a, in, a, in an amicable way, and there will be a lot more room for resolving some of these issues. What we were trying to find is, 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 is really kind of a connection that would allow people from these different countries to see themselves as part of this community. And it's not always easy because uh, it's a very diverse region and there is a long history of um, polarization. Right after the revolution, one of the most significant things that happened in Egypt is that young people were kind of denouncing this uh, single-minded Arab identity that uh, we've grown up being told by the, by, the, by the government through our education system. And we're re, uh, rediscovering their African identity. Uh, the Nile Project happens to be a, a vehicle for many of these young people to explore that African dimension of their identity. And a lot of people came to us saying, you know, I'm so glad that you're doing this because we've been looking for uh, a way to connect with, uh, with upstream countries that we've shared thousands of years of history with, but we've never been told about. When we went to Kenya, when we went to Ethiopia, when we went to many of the other countries, even if they were people that were not living in the watershed directly on the Nile, they still considered the Nile to be a very significant component of their identity and a main, major connector to many of these other countries. So there was a lot of curiosity that we could build on. Thanks, Mina. And before um, you pointed at diversities and similarities between different musical traditions of the different countries. So I'm curious to learn in practice how it works. How, how, how do you play with this uh, variety and with the similarities? How do you make um, your musicians uh, pl really play together? What, what makes it unique and interesting in the case of the Nile Project is that it connects very different styles, very different uh, rhythmic systems, very different tonal systems, scale systems.
for example, uh, Egypt has the Arabic maqam or Middle Eastern maqam system, which is a modal musical modal system that uh, relies a lot on microtones or notes that you cannot play on the piano between the white and black keys. Um, the, the Nubian uh, musical tradition is primarily pentatonic and polyrhythmic, uh, as well as the Sudanese. Uh, Ethiopia has its own pentatonic modal system called the Kenyan. Uh, and I'm not just, I'm not even talking about the diversity of instruments, the type, diversity of languages. So you have all of these different musical systems and you bring these musicians together in a residency. And, you know, one of the, one of the biggest challenges is to how, how do you like create a space that allows everyone to be making music from the same place to really understand each other? Um, so, 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 so the, our residencies are really music schools, uh, music schools where the teachers are the students. So our first week of, of any of our uh, musical residency that take place every year, uh, we have our musicians uh, prepare and teach workshops in their respective musical styles to all of the other musicians. And you can start seeing that the wheels are turning uh, in everybody's mind. They start seeing some of the connections, some of the similarities. An Egyptian percussionist hears uh, Ugandan rhythm and then starts seeing how it connects to an Egyptian rhythm. And then they start like working together on that. So the, the learning process is kind of supported by a creative process that starts with uh, pairs and tr and trios, you know, small groups of people that see these connections or glimpses of ideas and they work on them together. And then these small ideas keep growing into larger and larger ideas. Uh, we'd have like, you know, verses from different languages and different styles. So you have like a very complex piece of music. And then you have like very simple things that may not be trying to be overly collaborative, but they really kind of bring out one specific way that one culture in the Nile relates to the to the river um, that's unusual to others. I found indeed this very uh, original and, and inspiring. And indeed, your pro the Nile project was an inspiration for us. When we saw musicians from different Nile countries playing together, we thought, by what not trying also with journalists and researchers? Do you think this collaborative and creative um, experience can be also translated or adopted in other fields and replicated in other fields such as media, science or politics? Um, definitely. I think, I think there are many ways in which this musical pilot that we have developed uh, can, can, can really be, uh, you know, applied to other to other to other fields um, I would say one of the uh, main experiments that we tried and that failed actually was to bring people from different backgrounds uh, to bring the educators the journalists the policy makers the, the artists 
into one group uh, from these different countries. And there, it, was, it was too complex to, to have many conversations across disciplines and different cultures. Uh, so what we've learned from that is to, uh, you know, if you, if you have the cultural diversity, you have musicians from all these different countries, let them speak the same language, which is music. And there is enough complexity in that to create something very rich. Uh, in the same way, bring journalists together and let them create that. One thing we've discovered is that you don't really need outside experts. They are the experts. They are the ones that can teach each other. So keep things as simple as possible because the reality and the problems are already rather complex. So I think this is a very good tip. Finally, can you anticipate something about your next album yeah so so our, our next album uh, is named tana uh, after the lake where the blue nile starts uh, and um, it is the result of uh, two years of uh, collaborations and touring uh, we have performed it across the united states and europe as well as in uh, rwanda and kigali for the nile basin initiative meeting last october and uh, i hope that uh, we'll have it out in the next couple of months so uh please stay tuned on our website nightproject.org and uh, i am sure you'll like it it's uh, it's, it's it's i think one of the uh, one of the best musical uh, productions that we've worked on indeed we are looking forward to it thank you very much mina thanks for joining the sources of the night thank you emmanuel so much Rituals, Pleasures and Politics of Cooperation, sociologist Richard Sennett describes musical rehearsals as an example of dialogic conversation. A dialogic conversation is a conversation that might not end in finding common ground and shared agreement, but still, in this conversation, people become more aware of their own views and learn to better understand each other. This is what musicians do when rehearsing adjusting to each other's way of playing a certain piece of music. And indeed, what Mina described looks like another good example of dialogic conversation. Music in the Nile project does not really lead to the creation of a new ideal Nile identity, but rather it is used to establish connections. Mina, and Mina repeated several times this word, connection connections between different rhythms, scales, instruments and languages. Connections that made also people reflect and rethink about their own identity, as in the example of the young Egyptian discovering their connections with Sub-Saharan Africa. So, establishing connections while at the same time acknowledging differences. Mina, in fact, pointed also at the fact that some music pieces might be more collaborative while others might bring out one specific style, tradition or instrument. And I personally think that creating connections and acknowledging differences are key to learn how to stay in the conflict, including water conflicts. So thanks Mina and thanks to the Nile Project for their music and their inspiring activity.
And as usual, a big thank you to Emily Baust for editing also this episode. And preparing this episode was particularly fun because of all the great songs and music we listened to and we featured. We hope you enjoyed it too and we are looking forward to your feedback and comments. You can find all our episodes on NileWaterLab.org, on SoundCloud and on iTunes as well. This podcast is brought to you by the project Open Water Diplomacy, Media, Science and Transboundary Cooperation in the Nile Basin. The project is funded by the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Global Partnership for Water and Development. I'm Emanuele Fantini and we have been searching for the sources of the Nile.